Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. And where there is injury, pardon. Anger is extraordinarily easy. It's our default setting. Love is very difficult. Love is a miracle. inciting large-scale arrests and sympathy marches. I'm very aware of that, Mr. Hoover. What I do know is nonviolent. What I need to know right now, what's Martin Luther King about to do next? Mr. President, Dr. King is here. Mr. President, in the South, there have been thousands of racially motivated murders. We need your help, Dr. King. This thing's just gonna have to wait. It cannot wait. You got one big issue, I got 101. Selma it is. Here is the next great battle. Selma's the place, and they ready. Dr. King! I tell you, that white boy can hit. We will not tolerate agitators attempting to orchestrate a disturbance in this state. It is unacceptable that they use their power to keep us voiceless. People actually say they're going to kill our children. They're trying to get inside of your head. What happens when a man stands up, says enough is enough? We build the path as we can, rock by rock. His cell is probably bugged. <laughs> it probably is. We must march. We must stand up. You march those people into rural Alabama, it's got to be open season. I heard about the attack of innocent people. I couldn't just stand by. Looks like an army out there. This revolution goes on and on. This revolution goes on and on. My eyes have seen the glory. Glory, glory, hallelujah. What happens when a man stands up, says enough is enough?
Father, for our world. We ask that you would intervene. Last week we prayed about the Philippines. And the problems have not stopped there. Another attack in a hotel. And the president's promise that there will be many bodies dead. Last week we prayed about the bombings in Manchester. This week we pray for the attacks that happened near London Bridge. Oh Lord our God, we pray that you would intervene. We pray that you would stir your church to make a difference. When times seem dark, the light might shine brightly. May the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ shine brightly. God, we confess that we are in the midst of something that we don't know how to handle. And all that we know is anger. All that we know is fight. All that we know is accuse and blame. Lord God, we pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds. And that we as your people would display a path that is different. Lord God, have mercy. What we see as inconvenience, others are experiencing as terror. It is so hard to put ourselves into the mind space, the foot steps of somebody else that we don't understand. And so God, we pray the same for them as we pray for ourselves. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to see as you see so that we could do as you say. Bring peace to our world, Father, through love and not through violence. Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'm glad that you're here with us today. Selma was and is a powerful movie. Um, and I like history. I love those stories. I love the overcoming adversity story. I particularly like it when it's somebody else overcoming adversity and not me. Um, I love the story when we see people who are faced with great adversity and, and they rise to these unimaginable heights. And Martin Luther King Jr. was able to describe something, to, to call and to convince people to see things from the same vantage point. And he was able to do what was so hard. He was able to live and to battle with an emphasis on bringing together the spiritual and the physical worlds like we talked about last week. Today we're going to continue that by living in two worlds. What does it mean? We're going to talk about peace this week. His desire was, I want to win the battle against my enemy. 
without me hurting them and by even allowing them to hurt me. I recognize that the battle that I'm fighting is not against flesh and blood. So I will battle with weapons designed for a different type of battle. I want to win the battle through love rather than hate. And honestly, when we hear that, it seems so utterly ridiculous to even begin to ponder that in the real world. Um, We've had another landmark in our house. My son Griffin has recently learned to ride a two-wheeler. And he has really loved that new freedom that he has, just uh, powering around, seeing things with freedom, right? You remember that first kind of ride on your bike by yourself? But he's still on the edge of learning, and so there have been some wipeouts. (laughs) And some of them are spectacular. Um, I watched one happen from the other end of the street. He went down, and then there was silence. The kind of silence that you know as a parent that makes you pick up your pace, right? Maybe I'd better check and see what's going on here. And by the time I had arrived, the volume had gone from silence to considerable and he was holding his leg. And as a parent, we know that's a problem that's identifiable and it's manageable. That's just regular life in the parenting business. And then there was this uh, another day, very Recently, when Griffin came home and he was silent and his head was down and he wouldn't answer me and he wouldn't make eye contact and he went straight into the house and he went behind a chair and he curled right up. And as I approached him to say, what's, what's wrong? What happened? What's, why are you so quiet? Um, that's when the crying began. And this crying was louder and it was deeper It was different than the bike accident crying. And it was loud and it was filled. You could just hear the sobs that came out. And he was trying to talk, but the words couldn't be understood. And finally it came out. They said I couldn't play. They told me to go away. They didn't want me there. And they hurt my feelings. In those moments, when you're able to experience something like that, when you come across pain and the honesty that's like like that, you, you, you get the sense of our human condition. You and I, we don't say anymore that our feelings got hurt. We stop being honest. We stop being vulnerable. And we started really just being angry. Anger is so deep within the human experience that it shapes so many of our human interactions. So for us to begin to understand things that are so conceptual in nature, we need to have examples, enfleshed examples, so that we can get it. And that's why Jesus came. God is love, enfleshed, so that we could see. Love your enemies. What does that look like? How do you win that battle? We get an example enfleshed by Martin Luther King Jr. And it's less about the 
the technique of nonviolence on the surface, but more about the hours and hours of training that went on in the, uh, behind the scenes. The studying, the reflecting, the theologizing that was there, that being transformed by the renewing of your mind, submitting my selfish will under the will of God. What does it mean? How do I live a life of love in such a way that I will actually advance the kingdom of God? And here's our process of transformation. It's the pathway from the inside of a person to the outside of a person through behavior. Selma was released in theaters in January 2015. That same month, another hero, another movie was released about another American hero. And the box office tells the story of the, of the kind of heroes that we prefer and what a juxtaposition that they are. Two movies, same month, each featuring a character being lifted up as an American hero. Selma and the story of Martin Luther King Jr. on one side and on the other side, anyone? American Sniper. That's the one that most people went to see. It does reveal to us what we as people want to cheer for. Selma's tagline, one dream can change the world. American Sniper's ta tagline, one bullet can tell the story. And that's what we choose. That's what we know. That's what we're trained with. That's what works, right? Bullets solve problems, right? Today we're going to go behind the scenes. And you may never be called out onto the international stage, but you will be in varying situations repeatedly with different levels of antagonism. Whether they're global stories that change the course of history or they're personal and they're between individuals that will change the course of your history, you will be challenged. You may have already been challenged. You might very well be in the midst of being challenged right now. The date of your challenge might still be a mystery, but the training can help us to be ready. So we're going to start. We're going to look at another letter by the Apostle Paul. He sent this to his friends in a city called Ephesus. So the letter to Ephesus is to the people of Ephesus, so it's called Ephesians. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4. Christian ethics, just to set this up for you. Christian ethics are rooted in one solid principle. Whenever you are wondering how to treat someone else, the relationship between you and others, how should I treat that person? How should I treat my friend? How should I treat that stranger? How should I treat my enemy? Christian ethics, as they relate to other people, are always rooted in the same principle, and it's repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. The answer is zoom out. Zoom out of just that relationship. Zoom out of just that moment and ask yourself, how has God treated me? That's it. That's the principle. It's not long. It's not confusing. It's clear. It's straightforward. And this is a recurring theme throughout the New Testament. The way God treats you is how you are to treat others. So you'd see it in, in John chapter 13. It says, a new command I give you. 
love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. Again, in 1 John 4, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here it's presented about love, but the same template is there as it relates to all sorts of different lifestyle issues. So forgive as you have been forgiven. Show mercy as you have been shown mercy. Show compassion as you have been shown compassion. Show kindness as you have been shown kindness. Be generous in the same way generosity has been given to you. So our direction here is not just how do I behave towards someone else, but instead, how do I think about someone else? So Ephesians chapter 4, um, our passage will be 26 to 32. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to jump in and out. So we start, verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Stop. Right there. Do you know what that is? That is the most positive thing that the New Testament says about anger. It's the only thing said about human anger that's not overtly negative. Everywhere else, human anger is always identified as sin, as wrong, as destructive to relationships, to unity, and to peace. Now, we're not focusing today on divine anger because you are not divine. <laughs> Sorry if I'm the first one to drop that truth bomb on you. You're not divine. You're human. We're not focusing on divine anger because we're not divine. Anger is the emotion that is most associated with judgment. God is the judge. God heads up our wrath department, and he's not hiring. No matter how qualified you might think that you are, you are not the judge. That's not in your portfolio. We have a specific portfolio, and anger-based judgment is not part of our responsibilities. We are called repeatedly to release the anger, to drop it, to let it fall from us, to let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Yeah. Uh, when we hold on to anger, we are sitting or trying to sit in the seat of God. Again, a recurring theme in the New Testament. If you want to get things right, get the relationships right. But this verse, this verse is a popular one, isn't it? And maybe it's ambiguous. Maybe you can be angry and not sin. Well, this is new information, right? Because the rest of the Bible says that when you are angry... It is sin. So this is my anger justification verse. I've proved it. I've got a proof text. Boom. Yes, I'm angry, but it's okay because I'm just being like Paul in Ephesians. Let's read on a little bit. It's possible that you could read this and you could say, go ahead and be angry. And just make sure that you let your anger motivate you to do positive things and not negative things. If you let your anger get away from you and do negative things, well then, that would be sin. But as long as you're using your anger to do positive things, well then, just stick with it. If it was the only statement on anger in the Bible, then maybe we could leave it at just that. 
But we have learned to read Scripture with Scripture, right? So we have this verse, 26, in your anger, do not sin. Or in another translation, be angry and do not sin. And then Paul goes on to steer us a little bit more. How do I have anger but not sin? And he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him an opportunity. So here's how you can have anger and not sin. Are you ready? Get rid of it. A-S-A-P. Whatever you do, don't let it linger until tomorrow. Then, what we were able to say is that it might be considered more of a temptation to sin. But if you don't partner it with it, if you reject it and you say, I don't want it and I want to get rid of it, well then, we don't have to call that sin yet. So maybe anger in this way is similar to lust. If you find someone sexually attractive, and that is something that just strikes you, right? It just happens. You just feel it. You say, wow, is she ever or is he ever desirable? But now you have a choice. Do I fan this into flame or do I let it go? Do I send it packing? Do I put it in its place and move on to proper motivations to get to know people like love or respect? It would certainly be unusual for someone to say, hey, I know lust just hits you, all right? You're made to lust. That's the way we work. So why don't you just go ahead and use that lust? Harness that lust, that sexually lascivious lust, and nurture it to accomplish good things. It's bad if you used your lust to hurt someone, but try and capture that. Capture the lust and use it to motivate you towards good things. If we did that, we would be one very weird church, right? But we put up with that all the time in the Christian church when it comes to anger. There will always be a cheap imitation for a righteous motivation. You may very well feel righteous in your anger. Because remember, anger is the emotion that's most related to judgment. You feel superior. You feel righteous. You feel that you are right. You feel empowered. You feel like you can really get things done now, just like the Incredible Hulk. You might even feel holy as you point out with rage and indignation the horrible nature of their fallen ways. Anger is the primary cheap substitute for love that we need to be aware of and we need to be wary of. In our Christian tradition, you're going to find people who will tell you that anger is good. You just need to find ways to accomplish good things with your anger. I really don't think that's what Paul's teaching. Why don't I think that? Well, let's just pop down a little bit farther to verse 31. Come down a little bit where it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Don't tolerate any of these things. Get rid of it all. How much of it? 
All of it. The Greek word is pas. Everyone of every kind. Every kind of manifestation, get rid of it. When it first shows up, we won't call that sin. But now, let it go before it grows into sin and you partner with it. And that's certainly a far cry from hold on to it, nurture it, allow it to motivate you, point it in that direction. You can read the same thing in Paul's letter to his friends um, in the city of Colossae, the Colossian church. Colossians 3, it says, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Get rid of all of these things, or else you are opening a door. You're given a foothold. You are welcoming Satan in. You've given him an opportunity to attack you and to corrupt you. Don't give him an opportunity to get inside and infect your insides. But we live in the real world, right? And so the problem pops up. What do we do? We live in a society that continually inflames our anger. We are, tone, we are told and shown repeatedly that righteous rage or anger is the way that we are supposed to change the world, right? Finally, that good man has taken as much as he can take. And so now he must rise up in anger, pull out his shotgun, and tell those darn kids to get off my lawn. That development of social media has given rise to the practice, the habit of the outrage syndrome. You want something changed the way that you want it? Well, get angry, right? Tell others about your outrage. They didn't hear you? Yell louder. Name call. Shame somebody else. Explode for your righteous cause. The cause might be righteous. The cause might be good. But there is a disconnect when the cause is represented by yelling, by name calling, by shaming, by diminishing others, and, and just being all up in someone's face, right? Intimidating people. I dare you to voice an opinion contrary to mine. And that seems to become a badge of honor. That seems to have become a mark to show that you really care. It seems to have become a mark even of holiness. And this is where the Bible, the Word of God, the written Word of God, God's plan comes out to teach us how to live differently. You don't need all of that. Why? Because that is conforming to the likeness of this world. That is not conforming to the image of Christ. What you're doing then is you're trying to battle in this world with the weapons of this world as if we were battling mere flesh and blood. But that's not how you will ever break down strongholds that's not how you break down a stronghold of the spirit or a stronghold of ignorance or a stronghold of lies. We battle in a different way to achieve a victory that is longer lasting and deeper reaching. 
We are called to battle like Jesus did and like Jesus still does. We battle with love. We change the game. We change the tone. We are being changed from the inside out. And it displays in our behavior. We are being transformed into members of the kingdom of God where a set of new principles applies and that those new principles are the law. Now, if it was just up to me on my own, of course this wouldn't really work to change the world. But I am not alone. I am at work. I am in partnership with God Almighty who goes before to battle, to bring about His loving purpose. He lays groundwork for deep, pervasive heart adjustment. So, therefore, I will trust him to complete the work that he is about. I trust him to do it in partnership with me. I have a role. I trust him to transform me and the world around me. I trust him to do it his way so that I might live according to the law of the Spirit. That lifts a huge load off me. The end results, the judgments, and the transformation, well, they're all up to him. I live in my part. I live my part and I do it in love and honesty and submission to him. And he takes care of the rest. I trust him enough to even let the outcomes not look like I think that they should. I trust him for the bigger picture, much bigger than I can see. And I join that team as an agent, an agent of reconciliation, wherein he is the hero. I live in the freedom that has been granted to me. And I live that freedom in love. And I continually keep pointing to Jesus. And I show others by lifting my eyes up in the way that I live. And I keep pointing and I keep looking and others will join me to see what I am focused on, why I live in a different way, why my attitudes and actions are not the same as others. And I call those people, I call all people to see as Jesus is being lifted up. And as I do that, he promises that he will continue to draw all people to himself. We work in partnership. Scandalizo, that's a Greek word. It's the verb form of scandalon, and that means a stumbling stone. It means something that you would trip over emotionally. It's usually tied with anger. You can already hear that English word in the background that we get from this word, right? Scandal. Such a popular word lately. And it usually means an angry reaction to something about someone else that's thrown us off or upset us. Jesus uses this idea, and the word is used as he is describing when he's telling the disciples that they are going to be upset with him when he doesn't do what they want him to do in the way that they want. They will be scandalizo and run off to say, I'm offended that you would even think that. I find it shocking that you... Well, those... Those statements are not a badge of honor. They're not righteousness. They're not holiness. 
Instead, those kind of statements, they're marks of immaturity in someone who is still learning how to love. Love is our motivation. But that love is not passivity. In order to love someone, it means that you are cheering for them. You want to help them to change. Love says, I always want you to be the very best version of you that you could be. And sometimes, love will be the motivator for someone to hold someone else accountable when they're behaving in a destructive fashion. Because people don't tend to change when we ask them to change. People are more likely to change when we hold them accountable to change. Okay, so that peace and love stuff, that's, that's great. But if we're going to read the Bible, what about Luke 22, 36? Someone's thinking that in their head right now. I know you are. You're all saying Luke 22, 36, right? And Jesus said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also buy a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So what does Jesus mean when he told his boys to go out and buy some swords? There's a couple of possibilities. The first one is, what Jesus is saying in this statement is, forget everything I told you about peace and love. Now, go buy a sword and get ready to kill for the cause. Or at least defend yourself to the death for the cause. Possible. Problem with that is that we don't see any of the disciples ever do anything like that. All of the disciples die. None of them have a sword in their hand while they're dying. So number two, Jesus means it figuratively, metaphorically. Paul tells us later on in 2 Corinthians 10 that we don't battle with the weapons of this world. We don't battle with the weapons of this world, but we also really don't understand what it means to battle with weapons that are not of this world, right? So Jesus gives us a picture that we can understand, a sword. So on the top of your head, quickly, how many references can you think of in the New Testament where the word sword comes up? We get that one in Ephesians 6, like I'm asking you, but I'm not actually waiting for you. Sorry. There's that one in Ephesians chapter 6. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's Hebrews chapter 4. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Preaching is referred to as wielding the sword, wielding the Word of God. Be ready to preach. Be ready to declare. Be ready to be a witness. Be ready to advance the kingdom through proclamation, through declaration, and through display. The only sword guy that we found in the New Testament was Peter. At least one day for sure, we know that Peter was packing heat. Right? The guards come, they're going to arrest Jesus, and Peter gets kind of all physical. Right? He whips out a sword and he cuts off a guy's ear. So then, right at that moment, what is the call to arms that comes from Jesus? What, at that moment, what is the battle cry that Jesus lets out and lets them all hear it? Does he say, onward, good friends, now into the fray? No. Jesus rebukes Peter, and he says, 
Peter, you misunderstood. He heals the guy's ear, and then Jesus engages in this flesh and blood battle by loving his enemy. But many Christians come back to this verse. We could have probably put this in the Twisted series too. But, 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 but Jesus says, get a sword. He must have meant that we were all supposed to bear arms for the glory of God. Read it in context? Heck no. Interpret scripture with scripture? We don't need to because it's totally clear. Sell your cloak and buy a sword. Therefore, what? Therefore, start killing for Christ and for his kingdom? One disciple tried it, and there was a thorough and clear rebuke. Put it down. So, practical steps for those who are um, prone to wrestle with anger. So, who is that? Oh, right, it's everyone. <laughs> everyone. We all struggle with anger, right? Some to, more, more, to a greater degree than others. So I'm just going to give you a quick summary of a bunch of articles and studies that come from reputable sources that also seem to align remarkably well with Scripture. Typically, there are three ways to deal with anger. There's not only three ways, but these are the three big ones, okay? The first one is suppression. How well does suppression work? In the end, it makes it worse. Maybe not immediately, but long-term, it makes the damage more significant for you and for others. You take your willpower and you use it like a blanket, okay? And you take all that anger and emotion and you pull that blanket towards you, forcing the anger to go deeper into you. Pack it down, pack it down, pack it down. And it can feel hard, but good. You say, hoo-ha, I just battled and won. I conquered rage, I'm the man. But when you try to conquer through just suppression, it affects your amygdala. And you flatten out your emotional range. You know that that's not my words, right? Okay, I'm taking this from somewhere else. You flatten out the anger, but you also flatten out your joy. You are emotionally pancaking. You become more wooden, more distant, more inhuman, more android-like. And of course, there's still that volcano cooking down below that will one day erupt and surprise everyone and scare the pants off the people who are around you. Those who used to be near to you feel more distant. The person that they know is disappearing and is consciously withholding themselves from being fully known. And so you, you hear statements like, I just don't feel like I know you anymore. I'm losing touch with you. Why are you pushing me away? The reason that they feel that way is because it's true. Yeah, terrible idea. My solution is so much better. I don't suppress. I let it out, baby. I'm careful to always release the beast. I'm all about venting. I let the tension out. I rage and I yell. I kick stuff, including the cat. I punch the wall. I break things mostly vases with flowers or china figurines. Those are just my choices to break things. The second approach, this, this venting, it also makes it worse for you and for others. Not surprisingly, though, there's an initial payoff. You might, you might feel like you just saved someone's life by throwing that china figurine. 
It was you, honey, or the Royal Dalton. Because I love you, baby, I broke the precious moments figurines. But by doing this, it locks into your brain. And we get the endorphins flowing. And so now we're building neural pathways that are ingrained. They become habits. And it becomes easier and faster to do this over time. That's an anger addiction. It gives me an emotional payoff, and it takes less to bring me to that point because I've done it before. So we'll, we'll say it, it, it helps. So just let me rage, and then it will be done, and we'll all feel better. But that's not how it works. Trust is diminishing in those close to you. Stability is no longer expected. Instability is expected, and it's feared. Behaviors change around you. Number three, reappraisal. This is the way of Jesus, and science says now it's the way of science as well. Albert Ellis gave us this kind of a, a thought to, to, uh, to think about this. You don't get frustrated because of events, but about what you believe about those events. Reappraisal is another way to say, stop and rethink the situation. Tune into a higher reality, a greater reality, a broader reality. You're not making something up here. What you're doing is zooming out so you can see more than you might just have seen in the moment. You can do this. It is possible. Consider what is happening in the situation that you are in right now. What has just happened in that other person's life? Allow yourself to consider a larger context. Even in considering it, it can slow you down. And it can start to bring your core temperature down a bit. Perhaps the context even can allow you to have a sense of compassion to rise. This really isn't about me. There's more going on than what I can quickly see on the surface. You know that when you know more, you can love better. And you may not know all the details, but there is almost always something going on beneath the surface. Even if it's just stopping to consider for a moment what does God think about the person I am angry with? And as I say that, you go, oh man, as if I'd ever say that. Who can I don't want to think like that. And you go, why? Why don't you want to think like that? You don't want to release the power that anger has. You don't want to release the other person. You want to hold on and you want to fight. And this is a battle right now because you have to say, can I trust God? Could this be another place for my faith to grow? Seriously, will he take care of me? We're not talking about imaginary land now. This is real. Will he take care of me? Will he sustain me? Will he continue to work all things together for good for those that love him? Can I trust him? to care about me and for those that I love? The more questions you can ask about the situation, the more able you are able to now cool down. What kind of childhood did they have? 
What, what kind of experiences did they go through to make them think that this behavior is okay? Who were, who are their role models? What falsehoods did their parents teach? Now, be clear, this has absolutely nothing to do with solving the problem. This is about controlling your anger. And controlled anger is a giant step towards finding solutions to problems. It's not the only step, but it's a big one. And this is a step that consciously puts me into realization, again, that I am in partnership with God. Here is another step on that road trip in earnest pursuit of Jesus. And that greater reality that we can tap into is that we can live in love or we can live in anger. They are two pathways that begin side by side, but they end up in a very different place. So let's go from practical to personal, all right? This is the way we take truth and we let it transform me by the renewing of my mind. I need to think differently. So who is the person that hurt you the most? Who's the person that's hurting you right now? Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's a kind of people who frustrate you or disappoint you. Who are they? Who are the ones that you can look down upon and allow yourself to feel superior over? Same path. Deal with you. Deal with your own myth of righteous anger. Maybe, maybe there's a group that you can identify by race. Admit it. Be honest. You had bad formative experiences and you have not been able to let them go. Maybe it's not a chosen reaction. It's just, it's just always been there. Maybe it's not race. Maybe it's age. Old people, ooh, they're creepy and backward. Teenagers, don't even get me started. In my day, we would never have done that. Maybe it's 20-somethings. Oh, could they honestly be any more conceited and full of themselves? Maybe it's rich people. Yeah, rich people are all criminals. Maybe it's poor people. They're all lazy and they're being punished for their bad choices. Maybe it's people from a certain type or stripe of religion. Let's meddle. What about political leanings? Can any sane, rational, good person actually support that group? Ask yourself. Over time, are you thinking more thoughts of outrage, revenge, disrespect, judgment? Are you thinking of those more than you're thinking of ways to love your enemies? Man, this is hard. The problem with my enemies is that they are my enemies. They have worked frequently 
And they have worked hard to stir up my anger. It's not easy to even dream of loving them. They don't deserve it, that's for sure. And you're right. They don't. They don't deserve it. That's called grace. And it's what you were given by God when you had done nothing to deserve it. We behave in the same way that God behaves towards us. So you identify the individual. You identify the groups. And I'm going to give you just a brief moment of silence for you to begin to reappraise, to reevaluate, to realign, and to refocus before you leave this morning. Ask God to help you see these people as he sees them. Lord God, help me to see as you see so that I might do as you say. Kind Father, this is hard. This is painful. But we confess and declare and decide that we trust you. You know what's best for us. So we ask for your help. We need guidance from someone who is more experienced in this practice than we are. Jesus, that's you. How did you do it? Speak to me. Guide me forward, I pray. Put me on your path and continue to shape me into your likeness, I pray. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. The more we connect, the better it gets. We welcome you to join us on this road trip in pursuit, in earnest pursuit of Jesus. As you go, you're not leaving. You're being sent. And I send you by reminding you that we are Christ-centered. We are spirit-empowered and we are mission focused. We are on mission, everyone, everywhere, all the time. 